So where are we uh, with COVID? This is the worst pandemic in our lifetimes. Uh, the worst pandemic certainly in a hundred years, probably the worst pandemic in the history of the United States. Hard to figure out uh, if smallpox was a pandemic at that time or just a really bad endemic disease. So we are today uh, encroaching 200,000 cases a day in the United States, well over half a million cases a day uh, globally. Um, I was on a call yesterday morning uh, with the Director General of WHO Tedris and a group of people that form a group called GORN, the Global Outbreak Response Network. Every other Wednesday morning, we go around the, the globe and, and get a report on how is it in Singapore, how is it in, in Russia, how is it in India, how is it in you know, Latin America, how is it in the United States and China. <clears throat> it's, 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 it's really a tale of two cities. Um, uh, East Asia is feeling extremely uncomfortable because they haven't had a case in days. Um, Vietnam went 100 days without a case. Uh, uh, Singapore went 200 days. Taiwan went 200 days without a case. Singapore today is over a month without a single case of COVID. And so they look at us in the United States and Germany, which is having an explosion right now, and the UK, which is just beginning to dip after a huge peak. And they, they basically say, what the fuck's wrong with you people? They, they don't understand. Um, they, they don't understand how we could have uh, blown it as badly as we have. And, um, and we have indeed uh, blown it really badly. Um, we are in the United States. Um, we will pass 90,000 patients with COVID in hospitals. We don't have any more hospital beds in parts of the United States. Uh, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, one of the hospitals that I trained at in medical school uh, was a hospital in Detroit, Michigan. And it's still around. And uh, in May and June at the peak then uh, in Detroit, there were refrigerator trucks that had to come up and drive up to the morgue of the hospital and were filled with dead bodies because there was no more room in the morgue. I, I'm, I'm sorry to say um, that, and we'll have a lot to talk about of all the things we're grateful for. I'm not grateful for the fact that the next month or two will be filled with images of refrigerator trucks because the morgues and the hospitals will not be adequate to, uh, to hold the bodies in the United States. We really, we really messed it up badly. So much of this was unnecessary. Um, and and I, I try to think of, you know, uh, literary allusions for this group. Uh, you know, I think that right now Sisyphus would be a good one and trying to keep that rock from falling on our heads. Uh, maybe Tantalus, you know, as, as, as that poor fellow kept on reaching for the grapes, the victory that eluded him. Um, but, but I also think that this, um, this idea of, uh, of a Dickinsonian moment of the best of times and the worst of times is, is a useful image. 
And it's the worst of times, clearly, because this is not the peak of the epidemic. This is uh, uh, Everest Base Camp. We're going to go to Everest before the vaccine arrives, before the, the cavalry arrives, the heroes arrive, the scientific heroes arrive. Um, it is, um, it's clearly the worst of times so far in the pandemic. In the world, every day, we set a new record of the number of cases, number of deaths. Every day in the United States, we do. So it's the worst of times as far as the pandemic is concerned. Um, but it's the best of times uh, because just as a virus uh, moves at exponential speed, so has science. I mean, just take a moment to, to think of what really happened. Uh, MIT keeps track of, uh, of all the uh, peer-reviewed articles on uh, COVID. It succeeded 60, 80,000 articles. And, and, and many of them are really good. Lots of them are really good. Maybe not all of them. Um, we have three vaccines. We have 146 vaccines that are in some form of trial. We have three that have uh, passed the, the milestone of being put into the arms of, of tens of thousands of people with relatively minor side effects. The mRNA vaccines, the two uh, from Moderna and Pfizer have had you know, modest side effects. Um, we're not sure about AstraZeneca. There's some issues there we could talk about. Although it's, it's undoubtedly a good vaccine with efficacy. We don't know exactly how much. Uh, but how quickly we've gone. Um, for those of you who don't know, the previous world speed record in getting a vaccine was the mumps vaccine, uh, four months. We had the smallpox vaccine for 200 plus years before we had vaccine programs on a global scale. Uh, we had the polio vaccine for 70 years before we had um, vaccine campaigns as we do now. We're gonna have a vaccine campaign in two months we're gonna go from this novel virus disease didn't exist to a global vaccine campaign in 14 months. And, and what about the speed of monoclonal antibodies? Uh, we're, we're barely into a world that can understand what a monoclonal antibody is and we will have two at least and many more following uh, treatments that really appear to work if given in the right way at the right time and the right, you know, all those things. Uh, and our, um, our use of diagnostic testing, just it, again, to put it into perspective, the, the tests that we're talking about that everybody is uh, maligning and Trump is saying that the only reason high case counts is we are using more tests. These tests are tests historically that are used to confirm diagnostic hypotheses. A patient comes in to see me as a physician, and I think maybe they might have diabetes, and I do a glucose test, or I do an A1C test, or I do some kind of a lab test to confirm the hypothesis. We are now using these tests to make uh, the Democratic Convention safe. We're using these tests to get Hollywood productions back. Uh, New Zealand and Taiwan are using these tests to exclude people from coming. Uh, they're in a good way exclude. Maybe the only time I could ever use the word exclude in a good meaning. We're using these tests in a totally different way. And whether they're PCR tests or antigen tests or CRISPR tests or lab tests, 
there is such an explosion of these tests that we now don't even have enough place to store all the antigen tests, let alone um, find the right exact way of using them. The $5 10-minute at-home test is really right around the corner, a couple of months. Vaccines, treatments, testing. The science behind it is breathtaking and the speed at which it has accelerated is unprecedented. And it is equal to the challenge of the, the problem of a novel pathogen that jumped from a, a zoonotic host into humans. We're not gonna be able to do a classical eradication program, uh, even with all of that, because the virus appears to infect not just bats, not just civet cats, but mink and cats and non-human primates. And while we're not sure if that is a two-way infection, that humans can infect minks and minks can affect other minks and then infect cats and then infect humans, it's enough of a asterisk that the programs that we will be mounting globally, which will be the largest vaccine campaigns in history, if you take into account the space of time in which they'll be done, we have to vaccinate somewhere between five and seven billion people, most of them with two doses of the vaccine, many of them with annual boosters. Um, and we have to do it right now with two vaccines that are, are ill-suited for that, Moderna and Pfizer, because they require refrigeration at minus 80, minus 100 degrees. That's why there's a lot of interest in the AstraZeneca vaccine, because if it could only be one dose and didn't require more than modest refrigeration, then it could be the global vaccine that we need, and it probably won't. None of the vaccines that we currently have will be perfect, but um, like everything in science, we will grow, increase, improve iteratively, and we will get there. So it's the best of times for the science. It's the worst of times for the history of the disease, looking at the epidemic curve and the death rate. Um, and the reason, uh, and, and then I'll end my little introductory spiel. The, the reason that it became the worst of times is uh, there's, several, there's several components to that. One, we are living in an age of pandemics. Uh, every year, uh, two or three or four viruses of animals, zoonotic viruses, jump from animals to humans. And some percentage of those are innocuous, but a high percentage of them are bad. And uh, somebody's going to write a poem or a song that's going to get all these names into one song, like that phosphorus, phosphorus essence song on all the... the uh, um, all the elements, that element song, they're going to say Zika and Ebola and West Nile and loss of fever in Marburg and H1N1 and H5N1 and H7N9 and swine flu and bird flu. You don't want me to keep going. But, but those are all the zoonotic diseases, HIV AIDS, that didn't really in an important way exist in humans four decades ago three decades ago and one decade ago in many cases. And there are gonna be more. 
uh, and that it's going to grow. Um, ironically, 30 years ago, the Surgeon General of the United States said that we're, we've ended the age of infectious diseases. Uh, this is a growth period for infectious disease doctors, unfortunately, virologists, epidemiologists. Um, but we're going to have more of these diseases because there are more human beings, because humans have entered into animals' territory, because we're cutting down rainforests and we're, you know, we're eating more bushmeat and exotic animals and more meat, uh, and because we have transportation that can take what used to be an isolated event uh, occurring somewhere in a forest and bring it into Manhattan in under 16 hours from almost any place in the world. Um, so we, we need to learn from the lessons that we've learned in watching science travel at an exponential speed on this pandemic. Unfortunately, we will have occasion to, to use those lessons going forward in the future. And that leaves me with what I think is the most optimistic of the best of times, worst of times um, framing of this. Uh, and that is Ron Klain. <laughs> And the people like Ron Klain, uh, who was Ebola czar and is now chief of staff of President-elect Biden, and uh, the people who are the scientists who are now replacing um, the political uh, operatives who, uh, who ran what was supposed to have been a task force. Um, we're, we're, we're in the problem that we're in because of these long-term secular trends of animals and humans living in each other's territory and Virus is jumping from animals to humans. But we're also in this short-term secular trend of nationalism. And, and maybe this is open up the conversation to everybody. The, after, in, in my, you know, I'm not a historian, um, but I love history. And in my view, something happened after the Second World War when the concentration camps became under scrutiny and we all watched the skeletons come out of the concentration camps. We watched the firebombing of Dresden. We watched the mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We witnessed the awesome power of technology in the midst of war and hatred and anger. We saw the brutality and the ugliness and the horror of the fascist regimes. And I, the there was no singular event, I don't think, like uh, one of John's magical events or Steph's magical events. There was no singular event, but it seemed as if the humanity whispered to each other, let's never do that again. We've looked over the precipice and we've seen the gates of hell. Let's not do that again. And we created all these institutions to act like glue or to bind us together to um, kind of deal with the centrifugal forces and to make them centripetal. We created the United Nations and Bretton Woods and the, uh, the World Bank and uh, FAO and UNESCO and UNICEF and the alphabet soup of all these agencies and organizations, NATO. There was a CATO too in those days. We created all these alliances and partnerships and global um, communities to bring us back together and to stop these things that were pulling us apart. I think this is a good example. I think Katinka and John's whole universe is a, another example of the, the kind of uh, sisterhood and brotherhood of uh, globalism. 
global intellectualism, global economy. But over the past two years, it hasn't worked for everybody. And so we now have uh, Google forces that are pulling us apart. It's you know Putin and Erdogan and you know Trump. These are all you know Brexit. All these are are symptoms of the centrifugal forces pulling us apart. And uh, that's not my that's not my lane. That's not something that I know a lot about. But as an epidemiologist, it's the worst thing that could happen to us. We need to have a strong WHO. We need to have a strong United Nations. We need to have a strong Gavi and uh, Global Fund and all these different organelles that make it possible for us to deal with global threats. I would extend it a little bit out of my lane to say we need it desperately to deal with climate change and nuclear proliferation and drought and famine. But in, in the area that I know, in pandemics, we can't stop a pandemic without having global collaboration. And we have failed to learn the lessons of, of Taiwan and Vietnam and uh, Singapore and Korea and New Zealand, Iceland, the countries that have done really well, because we don't have a strong way to take the best lessons from the success stories in dealing with this pandemic and globalizing them because we deal with disinformation, uh, because we hold up the Swedish uh, example, uh, because we all love Sweden historically. And in this case, it wasn't a good, a good example of how to deal with the pandemic. Because we don't have a, a love of science in the leadership of the world, because we don't talk to each other in the way that we need to. So that's my way of tying together um, the peril of the moment that doesn't end with Trump's defeat, although it's certainly better. It doesn't end until nationalism and the forces that pull us apart are seen for the danger that they pose to the worlds that we want to live in. And I, I only offer the pandemic as one exemplar. God help us when we deal as we must with climate change in a world that's being torn apart by nationalism. Um, but I'm really optimistic compared to three weeks ago. I don't know about you guys, but I don't wake up with the same sense of dread every morning that I, I did before this election. Um, uh, this was the first WHO meeting of this group of elders that I'm part of uh, since the election. And uh, I almost cried uh, as we went around the world and people were talking about uh, how they were doing on the pandemics, not a single country failed to say to the Americans on the call, welcome back. We've really missed you. John, over to you. Uh, I'm back, all right, sorry. JJ? Yeah, um, thank you, Larry. And I really liked in your first talk when you said we shouldn't be thinking about this as a peak. Remember you said it's a wave and it was more like a tsunami and now we're in the third wave. And it feels like that messaging really 
replaced the peak idea, I guess, because there were many to follow. And I know that some of the early mistaken messaging around surfaces and germs have been replaced with like Mike Osterholm's don't swap air I've seen in the last week or so. And I'm really curious about this latest, what you mentioned from the WHO call sort of east-west divide that doesn't seem to really be true given the New Zealand and Iceland examples. And I worry that some of this is getting attributed like, well, the Eastern countries are gonna do so much better than the Western, but we have these cases of Western countries that have gotten um, COVID under control and you mentioned that. And so I'm sort of curious how that narrative is playing out um, in, your, in your world. Well, all the Western countries that have done well are run by women. <laughs> uh, I, th I think in, in being islands helps. Um, you know, Germany uh, had been a, a really great example of a success story run by a woman that was not, a, not an island. Now it's having a, a big problem. Um, no, I, I think it isn't the countries so much uh, that should be the exemplars, although it is resident in that country, uh, but it's what they did. Uh, so for example, uh, and, and, and there's so many ways to defeat this virus. Um, you, you don't all have to do the same thing. Uh, in, in Vietnam, uh, they, were, they weren't very fast in dealing with it, but they were incredibly meticulous. Uh, they would do contact tracing of 100% of contacts. So they would find every single contact of every case and find them and either quarantine them, isolate them, or in some other way, remove them from the density of susceptibles. Uh, the success in Taiwan is almost entirely due to speed. They would respond so quickly to any new case that even though they may have been less careful than the Vietnamese system in isolating or quarantine, they were so fast that speed is what made it work. Um, I think Iceland, Iceland uh, benefited from a long history of genetic uh, information and a great database. So they were data-driven. Uh, and in, um, uh, in New Zealand, they used exclusionary methods to keep the test, uh, to keep the virus from coming in. In Singapore, Singapore had two very different cultures. The regular Singapore, which has a kind of uh, built-in um, self-policing, I think is the best way to say it, where uh, individual volunteers uh, pointed themselves as citizens going up and down the street. And if they saw somebody without a mask, they would report them. <laughs> uh, but then they also had guest workers who lived in cramped quarters and very, very hard and unsanitary conditions. And the uh, epidemic kept on increasing among the poorest and most vulnerable in the guest quarters, leaping back into Singapore uh, proper, I guess, uh, until they understood that. And then they... Uh, they did something that we've not been able to do, which is they decided to improve free housing, give free food and free quarters for anybody who was sick with COVID, which you think of as a very, huh, of course, but nobody else does that in the way that, that they did it in order to stop the disease. Um, so there's a hundred different ways to defeat the virus. Uh, we just need to do uh, best practices that have, others have already innovated. and. You know, I'm reminded of the polio program and the guinea worm program and the smallpox program. 
which started off in every case with flawed hypotheses and um, in no case did they did those programs begin with the plan that they ended with. But because they had a porous kind of governing structure where anybody who had a good idea, that idea would immediately be tested and then socialized and uh, spread everywhere. That's the way a big program like that on a global basis works. And we've gotten so many great ideas and innovations. They happen to, yes, come mostly uh, from East Asia right now, but not exclusively. And um, they happen to come from countries that are run by women, but not exclusively. But we don't have a, um, a structure that does as good a job of gathering those great ideas and socializing them, and then having the political will to uh, follow them. Um, so you're absolutely right. It shouldn't be east-west. It, it uh, uh, I, I would joke sometimes that the virus hates totalitarian structures more than it hates democracy, but the virus hates everybody equally if you can anthropomorphize the virus that way. Um, but you're absolutely right to not make it into an east-west thing. Francesca? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I have two questions about the future, even though I don't want to, to put you uh, in the position of uh, trying to make guesses because it's a situation that is dynamical and uh, it's difficult to, to make previsions. But I have these two questions. One is uh, on the short term, uh, somehow, um, how much our life will kept on being changed. Uh, how much are we not gonna uh, come back to the old uh, way of life we had before? How much uh, do we have to take precaution in the future for this virus? So this is the first question. And the, the second question is more related to uh, what you were saying about uh, nationalism. And nationalism is uh, always fueled by capitalism. And in this moment, there is a lot of reflection uh, in society about uh, um, an opportunity here to change uh, society for, for the better using this particular moment. And on one hand, uh, science can be used uh, uh, to cover uh, totalitarian uh, uh, moves, uh, like to control more people and possibly to turn our society into a more controlled one, using the virus as an excuse, possibly. But on the other hand, there is always also a lot of discussion in making society more democratic, more free, and change our way of life into a more ecological, uh, more sustainable way. So what's your feeling about this? Um, well, I think the second one, if I could, I mean, I, uh, I, I don't have a clever way of freedom without, uh, wait, 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 I guess it was a slow, maybe times had it, vigilance is the price of liberty. Was that what it was? There's, there's something about uh, freedom, this notion of freedom, as in we can do whatever we want to do as individual, or individualism, some combination of, of individualism and Ayn Randian kind of um, uh, no, notions of, 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 in, of freedom, I guess. Um, that they, they don't go very well uh, uh, in um, when you're dealing with threats 
that are um, a loss of public goods or market failures. Um, we have, there's, there's no, the, the structures to deal with climate change um, don't exist inside of capitalism or any individual enterprise. Um, the same thing is true for vaccines. Uh, vaccines are public good, but it's not really in any, anybody's individual interest to be the first to take the risk of trying vaccines or even to fund the research on them. So we, we, we don't have the organizational capacity to deal with um, a class of problems that modernity has brought us that into which this kind of a pandemic and climate change and maybe some of the droughts that we've looked at uh, uh, fall. So, so I don't, I don't know the, of course, I don't know the answer to your question at all. Um, but, but I do worry that if you add to this already uneasy relationship between uh, freedom and accountability or freedom, individualism and global we welfare, if you add to that already uneasy equation, massive disinformation, social media that can disseminate disinformation so quickly and the, the political um, politicization of calamity, um, we, we've not dealt with it. We've not, we've just not dealt with it. And, um, and, and so I worry about that. I mean, the only alternative I see is strengthening, uh, not world government uh, per se, but strengthening uh, a kind of globalism that the world seems to be reacting against. I want more globalism of this, sharing information, sharing ideas, sharing um, best practices. I, I, I don't know how else we deal with that category of threats that into which climate change and pandemics are two of N, where we could debate what N is and how many there are, but those are certainly two. The earlier uh, question was uh, something like, uh, what does normality look like? and how do we get to normal and you know will we be back to where we were was it did i did i get that right is that um i don't know i mean i get asked that question so many times that i i i think people think i should know um i i i do i do think that some of the things that have occurred um because of this pandemic one of which is what we're doing right now um will have long legs i'm I, hard for me to believe that the life that I led before where I would get on a plane and, you know, and fly 16 hours for a two hour meeting, stay one night and fly back. Seems to me like that's, that's less likely to happen now when we can do things like this. Um, when I watch the exodus out of the cities into uh, leafy suburbs uh, instead of the, increasing squalor of a place like San Francisco, which I love, but is hardly at her best moment these days. Um, it's hard for me to believe the repopulation of the cities uh, after a pandemic will occur as quickly as it might have um, if there hadn't been the opportunity for, for some set of workers uh, to work from home. Um, so there's a little, there's some big societal things that seem to have occurred during the pandemic that are likely to have 
legs, um, some that won't. Um, I'm, uh, I spend a bit of time advising the travel industry or trying to advise the travel industry. And uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that that industry will be as it was before for quite some time. Um, but having, having said that, uh, it is remarkable um, how quickly that a change that we thought was taking forever to come how quickly it arrives when it does arrive. <laughs> I think there's some famous quotations on that. Um, and uh, you know, once we have adequate vaccines, if they are effective, as we hope they are, and if they have as few side effects as we hope, and if they are not, um, if they don't become politicized, and let me put an asterisk on that and come right back to that, um, things will get normal. Uh, we, we live in a normal world before uh, with a lot of uh, yellow fever. And I don't know if anybody on this call uh, has felt your world destroyed by yellow fever. It, it, it's a terrible disease. It's, it's, it's worse than COVID. Uh, and it does exist. And in the communities that are hit by it, they're ravaged by it. And, and yet we have a good vaccine. So uh, with a, a good vaccine and a yellow card or a digital version of the old yellow card, we got back to life pretty good dealing with yellow fever, even with malaria, even with HIV AIDS. We live with diseases that are terrible diseases, worse than COVID in many ways, and still deal with them. Smallpox, until it was eradicated, we lived with, um, with smallpox being almost everywhere, and most of us didn't even know it. In the summer of love uh, in 1967, the summer of love, two and a half million people died of smallpox. Uh, yet we had the Woodstocks and the Summer of Loves in the middle of pandemics um, like that because we had vaccines. So vaccines will transform the fear, the vulnerability, the, um, the, the sucking out of all the oxygen from the conversation, which COVID and Trump both seem to do. <laughs> um, the, the COVID will not occupy all of our emotional uh, intelligence, our emotional uh, time. That, that I think that'll be the biggest change I, that I can see. Um, and then these others are knock-on effects. Um, you know, I hope that one of the the changes will be a, re a reversal of this trend of um, centrifugal forces in the world, and that we'll be able to, and maybe through um, maybe through technology to re-begin re exploring our commonalities a lot more than we have before. I, I use best practices kind of like a, you know, an exemplar of what the benefits are of you know, recognizing that we're really all in this together. So, so I just wanna mention one more thing about the anti-vax movement and the politicization of vaccines. It's not just Andrew Wakefield, it's not just the the Lancet's error in publishing a bogus piece of science that was funded by a bunch of lawyers that um, it's not just the conflation of vaccines and autism, which is not true, but is certainly a, a meme. It's not just that. There's something else that's happened to the anti-vax movement in the United States. Uh, for those of you who are not in the United States, you may not know about an event that took place in the state of Michigan where a group of pro-Trump, anti-lockdown uh, militias dressed all in the military with machine guns 
took over the state capital and of course have then threatened to kidnap the governor of the state of Michigan. Uh, the pictures of this armed militia in the middle of the state capital of one of our major states is, is, is indelibly etched in my brain, my mind. And to think that that was a, um, a protest against the governor's attempt to try to put in place measures to stop COVID, which is really what was the the beginning of that, and then Trump fanned the fuels and told, you know, open up, liberate Michigan. But it was how it got started. All of the logistics for that, the money for that, was funded by the anti-vax movement. What? What is the relationship between armed militia going into a state capital and threatening to take over and the anti-vax movement? Well, the anti-vax movement has an infrastructure. Uh, and that infrastructure was energized by, and those two groups, movements in the United States, those two groups came together. And they are now cemented together in many ways. And, um, and so I worry about the anti-vax movement and the politicization of it. So there won't merely be a misunderstanding uh, about a relationship to uh, God help us to uh, other diseases, but it, it's actually a political movement and it's a strong political movement. So I do worry about that. I don't know if that answers your questions, but you, John told me to riff. Lots of things, a lot, lot of things to think about. Wanna get on the What do you want? Can you say more about the infrastructure of the anti-vaccine movement? I mean, this is, this is, is it an organized movement? It's certainly, um, or, uh, uh, it, you know, the, it has a lot of the accoutrements of a, of a political campaign. Uh, uh, there are films, the film Vax, with two X's, uh, the, um, the newsletters, um, the, um, the, the combination of, of, of legitimate, honest concern about how we have packed so many different vaccines, childhood vaccines, into such a short period of time in the earliest days of kids' life. A, a real honest and legitimate concern, coupled with um, uh, a kind of selfishness, I guess, where not, not invented here syndrome, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but you know, why should my child have a 1% increased risk in order to give society a 50% increased opportunity of health? That, that kind of selfishness that it's not uniquely American, but we've, we seem to have perfected it. Um, I live in Marin County, which is one of the epicenters of the anti-vax movement. So I'm more sensitive to the benign, more benign parts of it. But I don't think Michigan feels like the anti-vax movement was benign at all because of how it was organized. What the relationship is between armed militias 
in the anti-vax movement is part of a dark underground of, um, of right wing uh, and, and not even right wing. It's, I think the wings are gone. <laughs> There's no way of accounting for this in classical economic right wing, left wing kind of terms. Um, but the, the, the dark web is part of the organizing um, uh, areas for this. Uh, we're gonna find out a lot more about it uh, in the coming months as more and more COVID vaccines become available. Um, there's good news too. We shouldn't, uh, somebody said that we should celebrate our public health victories more than we do. Um, we, in the United States, we've now reached almost 80% of Americans routinely wear masks. Uh, if that were any other public health intervention and 80% of people used it, we'd be celebrating and dancing in the street, but somehow we're lamenting the 20% instead of celebrating the 80%. In a similar way, I want to celebrate the fact that we've reached uh, 55 or 60% of Americans now say they will take the COVID vaccine when that was 40 or 42% uh, only three months ago. Um, I actually think that's a pretty high number given a vaccine that didn't exist for a disease that didn't exist, you know, a year ago. Um, and I think it'll increase. So maybe this will be pressure against the anti-vax movement. Maybe this will be a catalyst for the anti-vax movement to become more aggressive. I, I don't know. Um, I hear all the time uh, that there are people who profit off the anti-vax movement, but I don't know who they are. And I don't quite understand it. It's not, it's not like you know, it's the Koch brothers who make all their money from fossil fuels. So naturally they're fighting against fossil fuels. There's, there isn't that kind of clarity. And maybe somebody else on this call knows a lot more than I do. I'm sure there's somebody else who knows a lot more than I do about where the economics uh, lie. The political uh, commonality between uh, the ultra-right in the United States and the freedom movement, and I am free to not take a vaccine movement, I am free to not wear a mask. I understand the superficial um, similarity between those things. They're not very deep and profound, but I don't, I don't know more than that. Larry, let me ask, can I ask you a simple scientific question uh, about if we go, when the vaccines are introduced, we understand that there will be not very much compared to the demand and the numbers will, of vaccine available will grow. Therefore, does the strategy with which the initial doses of vaccine which are available are distributed matter a lot to the course of the epidemic? Oh, what a great, what a great question. Um, so there's two offsetting, in my mind, there's two offsetting uh, dynamics dynamisms here. The, mm -hmm. the equitable distribution of vaccine, fair, just, going to the people who need it the most. Uh, a wonderful group of people at the National Academy of Sciences, a committee called the Equitable Use of Vaccine Committee, was chaired by Bill Fagey and Helene Gale. And Helene had been the head of care. Um, and Bill, of course, was the head of CDC, the head of the Carter Center, and is a, a saint. He's Bill Figge is one of the patron saints of public health. These are wonderful people. Uh, and they had a great committee. Um, a lot of uh, chairmen of Department of Epidemiology and Ethics were in that committee. 
and they have published their report. It's available for anybody to see. And they've, uh, uh, they have um, recommended a cadence where the first uh, group of people to get the scarce vaccine, call it the first tranche, um, will be uh, first responders and people working in hospitals uh, in the healthcare field. And that is both out of fairness to these people who've risked their lives and out of the practical consideration that if they're sick, we won't be able to advance the program as much. The second group will be those who are most vulnerable at dying from the disease. And then that has some subcomponents in it. And some of them are uh, demographic groups and age groups, people living in nursing homes, pre-existing conditions. And then that cadence goes on and on. So that is an ethically driven um, um, calendaring or prioritization of vaccine distribution. It is not the same thing as what we will be able to do once that initial demand has been met. Uh, for, for me, I'm waiting for a, a kind of uh, boutique nuanced bit of science to come forward, which is called PEP, P-E-P, uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. I'm waiting to see if any of the 146 vaccines uh, provide post-exposure prophylaxis, which simply means if you vaccinate somebody who's already been exposed and the virus is cooking and will become either a, a real disease or will become a spreader, you can still vaccinate them and abort the disease or abort the spreading. And we've had vaccines that had that characteristic in the past, but they are few. If we have a vaccine that has that characteristic, it will then allow us to do the most rational thing of all, which is to find every case and then vaccinate the people around them. We call that ring vaccination or selective epidemiological control. And ironically, the father of that uh, field is Bill Fage, who also chaired the Equitable Use Committee. Um, we don't yet have a vaccine like that that we know for sure, although we're, you know, with 146 uh, lotto coins, we can be optimistic about it. If we get that, then these plans may diverge. Um, uh, WHO is having a big problem because they've only got enough money uh, for uh, 1.2 billion doses of the vaccine in this COVAX agreement, one of these other global consortiums of, of, uh, that the U.S. that Trump pulled out of and Biden has said he will rejoin. Um, 1.2 billion doses is 600 million people who can be vaccinated. That's less than 10% of the world. Uh, but more importantly, um, WHO is sort of the singular agency, WHO and Gavi, um, IAVI, these vaccine monopsonies, um, they're the ones who are nominally taking it as their job to provide vaccines for the countries that can't afford it themselves. So 600 million people is not very much. That's a big problem. Um, I think there'll be plenty of vaccine for the developed world. Um, the U.S. has pre-production purchase agreements for well over a billion doses. That's more than enough for Americans. Uh, England has plenty purchased. Uh, India is going to turn out to be the largest producer of vaccine. 
and has made a commitment that half of all the vaccine that the Pune Institute of uh, um, uh, vaccine production will be able to manufacture. Um, the Chinese, the Russians, uh, well, we don't know very much about their vaccines. Uh, over a million people have been vaccinated in China already. Um, there'll be a profusion of vaccines with different characteristics that'll be very difficult for all of us to figure out which one is the best and which one is the safest. Um, but I think that, uh, as I said earlier, sometimes it takes forever for something to happen and then it happens all at once. So I think we'll see a profusion of good vaccines. I have a So quick follow-up. What, what if one could show that the most efficient strategy was not the ethical one? Well, we can, I think. Uh, the I think we can, too. The, the most efficient strategy is to, to to do the one that we did in smallpox, which is to, to, and has recently been done in Ebola, which is to, you know, find every case and, and vaccinate everybody who's susceptible. Um, it, maybe efficient is the wrong word. Effective. That's the most effective strategy. Effective. So I wonder on, on the same point, I can see the logic behind starting with the most vulnerable, etc. Can I just say how, how nice it is to you? Sorry? How nice it is to see you. Well, like, likewise, and, and, and the rest of you as well. It's been a while since we uh, connected. Um, yeah, th th thanks for your uh, remarks on this. Um, on, on this kind of cadence, the plan for how it would be, so I see the logic behind the the approach you outlined. I'm wondering though, if the main concern is that ultimately in not enough people will choose to get vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. If, if there are a lot of sort of people with anti-vaxxer sentiments, or even if they're not all the way there, they're just, you, maybe you could run an argument that the better approach would be to, well, start with some healthcare workers and nurses, but then rather than going immediately to say the most vulnerable people in old people's homes, and what you would rather want to do is to start with social elites so that it becomes seen as a desirable thing. Uh, people see these rich and famous people getting their hands on the vaccine early. Everybody will want it. They see it as a good thing. And then as soon as there are more doses, then everybody will as soon as they are able want to have their own families vaccinated. Whereas if you start with the elderly, maybe it's become seen as this thing that weak people do. And that if you're a strong, you know, real man, like who's healthy and young, you, you don't want to be associated with that. Yeah, Tesla started off with a James Bond roadster to, to make electric cars sexy. Uh, no, no, I understand. Um, uh, the, so, so let's talk about herd immunity for a second. Um, there's something funny about the way in which COVID has spread through the population in that it is lumpy. It doesn't spread the way uh, a normal respiratory disease spreads. And whether you're talking about R naught or R instantaneous, R or community infection rate, or all these mathematical models that we've had, it's still uh, it. We, it's still 20% of people who are sick spread 80% of the disease. And those 20% are, as Nick said, they're probably highly networked individuals. And therefore the first group of people to get the disease because they have a lot of network connections 
were probably the first group of people to spread the disease. And the argument goes that that lumpiness uh, means that traditional notions of herd immunity um, uh, have some challenges to them. I, I think that's a lot of truth in that. Uh, I think there's even more challenge to the notion of herd immunity. And, and, and let's separate out two kinds of herd immunity. Historically, epidemiologists talk about herd immunity, meaning what percent of people need to be vaccinated to stop the disease. And there's a formula which is herd immunity must be greater than one minus one over R naught. <laughs> so if, if, if the virus is spreading at a speed where one gives rise to three, and that's your replication value R, then one minus one third is two thirds. So you have to vaccinate two thirds of the people that's herd immunity in that sense. A lot of people have been using herd immunity to mean what percent of people need to get the disease. That's not really an authentic uh, historical use of herd immunity. In part, we don't know how long and we can't control how long people are immune. We're not sure what inoculant kind of disease. There's other reasons for that. But Nick, um, you don't need to get to herd immunity to stop this effing disease. Uh, we never got to herd immunity with smallpox. And in some places where 95% of people were vaccinated, they had huge epidemics of smallpox. Likewise with polio. And, and, and the idea that um, uh, there's so many asymptomatics that those rules don't apply. In polio, 999 out of every thousand people who get polio are asymptomatic. So it's not, it's not that. If we can find every case of COVID, and uh, there's a good argument for the number in the United States. There are 3 million people in the United States. It's probably 2 to 10 million, but 3 million is the number right now we're using that are infectious. Well, that means that you know, 327 million are not infectious right now. If we could find those 3 million and vaccinate everybody that they are face-to-face -face exchanging air with, um, and vaccinate them with a 90% effective vaccine, the disease stops. And of course, uh, if you add to that, you find everybody, you vaccinate them and you isolate them, then even if the vaccine fails, you can still stop the disease. But that's, that's augmented by what I said earlier, which is this post-exposure prophylaxis. If you can't, if you vaccinate someone after they're exposed and it doesn't do any good, then you have all these other problems. But I agree with you. You're, 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 you're somebody speaking. The core question is do effectiveness and equity. Is that right? I can't hear his, his voice. Hello. My concern was that if you could show that there are strategies that are not the ethical strategies that give you, say, five to 10 times of effectiveness. That is, each dose of the vaccine is worth five or 10 times what it would be. Who would make that decision? And I, I don't know who make that decision. It would be different, I presume, in different countries and different places. It is ironic that the history of that uh, ring vaccination strategy, which was the, was based on the most ethical 
um, decision-making process that I know of in, in, in vaccines. Because Bill Fagey was a missionary doctor in um, Nigeria during the Ebo, during the war, and he had a very small amount of vaccine and a very big epidemic. And he had to make a decision of what was the most uh, ethical distribution. And at the time, it was the richest and the most powerful people in Nigeria asking him to vaccinate them. And he, you know, he thought what is that the most ethical thing to do was to give it to the people who are most at risk of getting the disease next. That is the same as the strategy of vaccinating a ring around everybody who is infected. And so his strategy and his final paper, which is called Selective Epidemiological Control, was based on what, um, on that, on his own ethical uh, struggle to make that decision. Um, it, it's not an easy thing mm. to sell. It, it's counterintuitive that you don't vaccinate either what Nick said, which is the most highly networked individual who maybe they're the people who are creating more, more clusters, um, super spreader events, or the richest people in the world who are making the most demands or the poorest but instead you vaccinate the people who are the most susceptible in the moment and you remove them from the density of susceptibles. And um, I don't wanna to get too wonky, but the single biggest driver of a pandemic, of an epidemic is the density of susceptibles. I think the single biggest driver of a forest fire are the susceptible trees around it. That, that's not, not to say what is, the, what is the cause of the forest fire, but the driver of it, if there's no other trees wow. around and you have a big flaming, you know, eucalyptus tree, it's not going to make any difference. Um, there's no other structures to burn. It's the okay. same thing with, with, uh, with an epidemic. Uh, Larry, uh, Jesse Dillon has a question. Jesse, where are you? Uh, I'm in Los, Los Angeles, up on the mountain, never not coming off until everybody's vaccinated. Um, Larry, Wait. it's good to see you too. Um, you know, we've had such a short period of time that we've we've uh, created these vaccines. If before we started, we would have uh, never thought that you could necessarily do it this quickly. What does that mean for the future of um, of medicine? You know, the the things that are going to be possible that came from this this giant spend that we've just you know done. And then my other question is, you know, we say vaccine, but you know, if you have certain comorbidities, you're gonna what's the selection process for which vaccine I'm going to take or you're going to take or you know it seems like there's a lot of varieties and how do we know how are we going to go through a process for people just to select a vaccine because there's two on the market now but I mean there's 150 coming well I hope you're going to call me because you don't call you don't write well of course <laughs> um so uh the mRNA vaccines the two that are first out of the shoot the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, they offer not only a vaccine that is less likely to have bad side effects because they're not actually infecting you with a modified vaccine or an attenuated vaccine. They're just giving you a little, a little bit of code that programs your immune system through the messenger RNA. To me, that's the most exciting of the many different 
millions of vaccinology that have been pressed into service by the pandemic, because that's something that bodes, I don't know if it bodes well or is intriguing or uh, quite exactly the right word to use, but the opportunity of using messenger RNA body to do other things is really exciting. Uh, there's a group called COVAX, which is doing a similar thing with a peptide. But, but so some of the science that comes out of this, I think will, um, that has the potential of being valuable, not just for vaccines, but for treatments and not just for infectious diseases, but for chronic diseases as well. I'm really excited about that. Um, although none of us know anything about um, whether these vaccines are indeed safe. And let me just take a moment on that. It is, we use the term efficacy signal, it's a shitty term, um, but, but it means does the, um, does the placebo controlled uh, t uh, uh, trial that you're doing with your, your vaccine in this case, does it show an F, uh, efficacy, efficacy signal? Does it, does it show effectiveness? So uh, let's just take the, the one study that did 30,000 uh, people and did them into two groups. 15,000 got placebos, which is salt water in the same kind of injection, same color package, and, um, and 15,000 got the vaccine. And then they're allowed to go out into the world and, um, and get infected if they do or not infected. It's not a challenge study. You don't vaccinate them and then give them the disease. And in this study... With 30,000 people, um, about uh, 190 some odd people got infected. And of the people who got infected, more than 90% had not been vaccinated. So you, you convert that into what is your risk of getting the disease if you've been infected and your risk is nine times less than the other group. So it's 90% effective. That's the efficacy signal that we got from both Moderna and Pfizer, roughly, roughly. Allow me the, uh, the rough part of it. Now, what's the safety of it? Well, you can't do the same thing with safety. Uh, literally, these vaccines have been in trial for three months. We only know what side effects occur three months after you're vaccinated. And while it is true that the majority of side effects take place within a couple of months of being vaccinated, that is not true for the worst side effects, which may not happen for a year or five years. Um, some of you who are wonks may remember in 1976, 77, when we had a swine flu um, scare and CDC vaccinated millions of people with an H1N1 vaccine that was rapidly created. And only after millions of people were vaccinated did we discover that, that quite a few people got Guillain-Barre's disease and that entire program had to be pulled back. So the, the, the real side effects of a vaccine that occur later, we can't know until later. These trials can give you an efficacy signal quickly, but they can't give you a safety signal quickly. There's no way to truncate that time into getting... Um, and because absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, we can't prove that there's an absence of side effects right now. So that's something to think about. And, and it does 
Tavax question we had earlier as well. I have a question for Jesse. Um, in terms of communication strategies and the divisions of the country, you know, I'm sure this is what we thought about. How do you how do you present a vaccination program, or what you know, what thoughts do you have on the subject? Um, well, I think it's too early to say. You know, um, when um, you know I worked for President Obama, and then when Trump came in, you know, we had done a lot of design research on you know people's attitudes and feelings about Obama, and then Trump came in, and all of that had to be redone. You know, irrespective of political. Well, I guess because of political beliefs, they, the feelings that people had uh, were completely different when Trump was president. So I'm hopeful that when we and, and I've worked on it from I've worked on warp speed and I've worked on um, on, um, you know, at NIH on a bunch of different things. So I, I'm hopeful that when this, um, you know, we we make the change when the government changes again, it'll, it'll change again and it'll people be more tolerant. You know, Larry was talking about frontline workers at the current time, only 40% of frontline workers are willing to take the, uh, or 60% are willing to take the vaccine. So, you know, I mean, Larry, like, what is this um, sort of cognitive dissonance that people have about it? And what are the repercussions if, if um, like, let's just say half the country doesn't get vaccinated? What does what that, what is, what are the long-term repercussions of that for all of us? I, I think they're both better and worse than we think. Um, the question that you're that we are being asked is an abstract question. Would you take the vaccine? It's not your mother has just died in a nursing home. Would you take the vaccine? And uh, if the strategy of ring vaccination or selective targeting of vaccine around clusters or outbreaks is used, then then the question shifts from the abstract, will you take a vaccine, to, oh, hell, I've just lost somebody I love, or I know people who are dying all around me, will you take the vaccine? And um, I think that that will change the calculus, the individual, everybody, every human being makes an individual cost-benefit decision. Uh, and they're not, not it's, it's not stupid, it's just, your, and your data set is different. So that'll do do people not remember? I mean, is it, you know, I had somebody in my family years ago who had polio. So that's always been in my mind since I was a little kid. But, but do people not remember what polio was like in this country, the things we don't see in the country now? So they, they don't think, well, you know, I'm not going to get vaccinated against polio. And then we get a resurgence of something that is so horrible. I think you're answering your own question, um, really, in a, in a you know, you're, you have in your memory bank and in your life's experience, uh, the experience of polio. That, that's less and less every year. Um, uh, you know, the, I, I think there are less than 25 cases of polio in the world today. So the lived experience of polio, uh, which is indeed the, a major contributor for people's motivation to invest in a polio vaccine, do the trials for polio vaccine efficacy and take the, the vaccine themselves, that diminishes. Um, the lived experience for COVID, um, even though we've you know, had uh, just, just shy of 20 million cases in the United States and just shy of 100 million in the world, um, you know, th that's a very small percentage of the population. So it's still true 
that more people have not had a family member or friend uh, be hospitalized for COVID than have. Uh, that will change if the vaccine focus is on cluster control, outbreak control. And we can't do that yet uh, with uh, 200,000 cases a day going on to 250,000 in the United States. How on earth can you see where the clusters are and uh, what county health officer can go and investigate an outbreak and do contact tracing? I mentioned earlier that Vietnam's success was based on 100% contact tracing. A comparable figure in the United States is probably 5%. So how can we control a disease when we can't even see where the clusters are or the outbreaks are and find all the contacts? I think we should think harder about that question. Yeah, and what role do you play the the federal government plays in all of that possibly, Larry, you know, like what is the role of the federal government? Usually in, in another period of time in, a, in an age with more rainbows and uh, unicorns, I would have answered, well, CDC does it. <laughs> um, it's gonna take a little while to uh, repair the damage done to CDC's reputation. Uh, that's the source of authentic scientific information historically. You know, the, I, I mentioned earlier on those WHO calls, what everyone around the world says is, welcome back. We missed you, America. They're really saying we missed you, CDC. <laughs> we missed you, uh, uh, love of science and expertise and leadership um, in the field of epidemic control. It's the U.S. and it's, it's these phenomenal scientists at CDC uh, that have always led uh, our campaigns against infectious disease and epidemics. They're still there for the most part. Many of them have retired and left and tried to get out of the circular firing squad that uh, the Trump administration brought to CDC. But many of them are still there and many of them will be called back. A lot of them will be called out of retirement to come back, I'm sure. Uh, but that's where it'll come from, Jesse. I think that uh, that the... The strategies, the, um, look, it, it is not just a political talking point to uh, lament the fact we don't have a national strategy. And what, what Trump did in retrospect by saying, ventilators, not my problem. Governors buy them. Testing, not my problem. 50 states compete with each other for masks, drive up the costs, you know, make, it, make for scarcity. It, it isn't just the material scarcity that occurs when 50 states compete with each other. It's the intellectual scarcity and the fact that there's no controlling, um, no, no federal strategy. We had no national strategy to this day. Uh, the, the, the Trump administration's national strategy was not, not here, not me, not, not real. Um, that, that's all gonna change under uh, a new administration. That would have changed under any new administration, and it will particularly be true under this administration. I have a question uh, for Danny Kahneman. Um, as you recall, you, you uh, spoke about the difficulty people have with the idea of exponentials a while ago, and all that's coming home to roost now. Uh, in your field, are people thinking about how to how to communicate you know, these issues that most people 
I'm not equipped to even think about. In terms of re in the last six months, have, have your, you and your colleagues been thinking about this kind of thing? I don't think I have much progress to report on, on this. <clears throat> Educating people to think about exponentials is, is not going to be easy, and I don't think it's, uh, it's at all feasible. Uh, it really is a matter of, of the policymakers. I mean, I don't think that I don't think that it's the public that needs to be educated. There needs to be a strategy. There needs to be a, a national strategy, and and there needs to be more respect for facts. So those that's where the problems are. I don't think that the problem is the psychology of thinking about exponentials, which is uh, that's not going to be fixed easily. Danny, if I could, I just want to say the first time that uh, John put you and I in contact, which uh, of course was such a delightful moment for me, um, I asked you what you thought was the biggest uh, problem that we would have in dealing with COVID. And you said that uh, you'll be able to do a close down once, but once you've done that and you, and you open it up, you'll never be able to get people to close down a second time and God were you right and prescient and um, that uh, that has turned out to be one of the biggest problems that we faced. Yeah, I mean that that was really predictable and, and almost built in because uh, once you impose it again people are conscious of unfairness and they are conscious of being affected more than other people are and, and you know why me and why not others and uh, whereas the initial lockdown was acceptable to everybody, but uh, you really get fragmentation uh, in future, and we're seeing that everywhere, actually. I was going to ask you, Larry, about Germany, because one of the things that have been very striking to me is that we had a success story, and it doesn't seem to hold. Now, if the success story isn't holding, what is it? What is happening? Is it because Germany is not isolated or because uh, you really need to achieve a certain degree of eradication, which they did in Singapore and in other places before you can really open up and relax? Yeah, I think uh, this, the, the success in Germany is due to two major factors. One is you have uh, a scientist and an engineer um, as your prime minister, who has been interested in pandemics and sponsored uh, all of the G8, G7 uh, uh, resolutions and on pandemics for the past 10 years, way before COVID. So you, you got the perfect leader at the perfect time. And the second thing is that Germany have, had planned ahead uh, with a national insurance kind of plan and uh, excess hospital capacity. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, never had the surge problems that we had elsewhere in the world where we ran out of capacity. There's a lot of other reasons too, but, um, but, but you're right. It, uh, I, I don't know. My uh, question is about their difficulties now, not about their initial success. Well, but success was understandable, but uh, why is it so hard to, to retain and why have they been successful in in the East, and apparently not in Europe, not in Israel, where you achieve some initial successes and then it rebounds. What, what do we know about that, about the rebounding? 
Well, as, as, as was said earlier, it's not just the East. It's, it's, you know, Iceland and New Zealand are not necessarily in the East, but, it, but it's definitely um, those individual countries that have succeeded so well have each succeeded uh, by a combination of practices that we would think of as best practices uh, called from global experience. Uh, Germany was the first uh, to, to make a test kit and actually was a German scientist who made it and gave it to WHO. Uh, so, so Germany had a real leadership position early on. I think there's some kind of regression towards the mean going on uh, in Europe uh, in general. Uh, it's not Germany alone that has had a, a spike. It's Spain and France horribly, England until just about a week ago. Um, so I, I can't answer your question. I don't know the answer, but um, it, it may be that you, as you say, you never got it down to a, a low enough number that outbreak control alone could offset the continuing importation of cases from outside the country, which is what fueled it. It wasn't just community spread. It was a constant reigniting of new, uh, of, of new forest fires that led to the larger conflagration that we're seeing right now. So, I mean, is it that, is it that the Europeans just said as July looked good and better and better, the hell with it, we're going to have a regular August, we're going to Liguria to the sea, we're going everywhere as we always do, and no masks, no social distancing, hallelujah. No one knows the answer to those questions, but you know, I my best guess is that uh, uh, the school semester that begins in uh, in the autumn will be a normal-ish school semester. That wow. kids will be going back to a few camps during the summer, um, and that uh, wealthy, elite, well-connected individuals and uh, wealthy countries uh, will show um, islands of normalcy, uh, normalcy being no COVID. Um, and the world will begin to look a little bit like Swiss cheese, uh, where the holes are uh, COVID-free zones. Uh, and the, the yellow meaty part of the cheese is the rest of the world until those holes coalesce. And then counties are free, states are free, countries are free, and then they'll erect borders. Uh, and then there'll, then there'll be bubbles that are made between countries that are free. And recently, an interesting ex experiment uh, between Hong Kong and Singapore to create a, a bubble of travel that fell apart. But, but there are such experiments going on between Australia and New Zealand. Um, I think that that's, it'll grow from the holes in the Swiss cheese to the you know, to the rest of the world. And we will eventually uh, kick this, this disease into the dustbin of history, but it, it won't be without going through hell in the next couple of months. And I don't know, I, we have some logistical issues with taking vaccine production up to scale. And the better vaccines, the two, the Moderna and uh, the Pfizer vaccine will be the hardest to get to scale. 
vaccines like the AstraZeneca will be easier to get to scale because it can be made in these huge factories in India. And it's, 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 a, it's a vaccine made in a way that other vaccines have been made before, not novel in every way, like the mRNA vaccines are. But it'll take the world being free. I mean, I'll say what everybody knows. If there's COVID anywhere, there's COVID everywhere until we have these islands of freedom. Carlo? Thank you, John. Um, I have a question uh, to Larry and to all of you who understand these things, um, hopefully far better than me. It's a very general question. So it's obviously the answer is not going to yes or no. But, the, uh, but I'm, I'm generally confused because I've also, also been talking and writing about that. And, and uh, if you help me clarify, the, the question is the following. Um, so let me distinguish two things. One is the foolishness uh, that we have seen, obviously, uh, both in some government and some political forces in, in, in a lot of people of uh, uh, ignoring scientific facts, willing to believe things which are not true and, and so on and so forth. And just put it as, as large as you can. So I, I see that very well, very clearly. And it, it's obvious that that much does that. But let's try to forget that for a moment. I mean, suppose people were not foolish. Uh, people were reasonable. People were all, just for a moment, for, this, for the question I want to uh, uh, ask. The question I'm going to ask is the following. If, if you forget that, is the problem of defending ourselves from this pandemics just a technical problem or not? And let me, let me say what, what, what I'm saying. Uh, what, what I mean here. Uh, I have the impression that some sort of societies have found themselves in a choice. Uh, how can I put it? Let, let me put it brutally, between saving more lives and making more people poor. I mean, things are far more complicated than that, obviously, but that's we put it, put it brutally. Now, if, if the choice is between uh, having more people dying and uh, having more part of the population that become poor. That's a political choice, it's not a technical choice. I'm in favor of saving people, no doubt. So I, I would be happy to live in, uh, in, uh, in Taiwan or in, uh, in, in, in Vietnam and uh, going through political choices, which I, I, I share and I'm happy with. Um, but I do understand the argument of those who says, wait a minute, uh, okay, if some old people die or some people die, if in exchange um, we can avoid uh, impoverishment of society. And then the problem becomes political, not technical. So the question I'm asking is that if, let's separate for a moment the foolishness of ignoring scientific facts. Beyond that, is there also an issue in this pandemics, which is political, is not technical. Of course, um, but I think the distinction without a difference. Um, I think the historians will look at the Swedish experiment, which is sort of an encapsulation of you know one form, of, uh, and they'll look at it as one of the great tragedies. Um, and it's because you can't get, you can't get there that way. You can't get to 
um, economic uh, growth without solving the the problem of a pandemic. History shows that in every pandemic, in every place. There's two differences here. There's geographic spread. This is really a pandemic. This is, I mean, the plague of Athens didn't go much beyond Athens, <laughs> you know. Um, it, this is a, uh, so, so you have to look at, can I isolate my entire country and isolate it from the effect of the pandemics all around me? And islands can do that better than, than, than countries that are contiguous with land masses or have open borders. The other is time. So it's geography and time. Uh, once you have a vaccine or vaccines in sufficient quantity and tests in sufficient quantity and treatments in sufficient quantity, which we're going to have in a matter of months, I think this argument uh, disappears. And, 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 and in fact, it is a lack of confidence that there would ever be a vaccine or ever be a therapeutic that does give some strength to the question you're raising. Because if you think that there'll never be a vaccine or a therapeutic and that this state of a pandemic is, is permanent, then of course the choice between economic well-being and, uh, and, and, and death rates become much more, um, much more cogent. Um, but once you have those, as Tony Fauci says, the cavalry arrives, once the cavalry arrives in terms of the of, uh, preventions, prevent, prophylactics, preventative measures and cure, then, then they're the same thing. Uh, if you don't bet on there being a vaccine or a treatment, you might make that choice. But I think it's, uh, I, I, I don't think it's a real choice. I think it's a false choice. And uh, certainly in retrospect, it'll look like that. I have a question, Larry. Hi. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm wondering, um, and just going back for a moment to the, to the German perspective, um, because we have a country where we can trace, I'm not sure how much, but I think a, a much higher uh, amount than in the US right now in terms of uh, cases and outbreaks and where they're coming from. Would you, um, would you advise those kind of countries who have tracing capabilities like this to advance a strategy of vaccination, which is more in line with identifying current uh, people infected and the people that they've been uh, exposed to? Um, because from what I'm understanding <clears throat> uh, in the German discourse right now, that's, that's never been discussed fully. And that's not really something that they should be, that they're looking at when it's been very interesting hearing you today that that sounds like an incredibly uh, uh, appealing alternative, particularly if they actually have a pretty good handle on uh, outbreaks and on tracing those outbreaks. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, it depends on what vaccines uh, pass the hurdle of being uh, effective and whether they have this post-exposure prophylactic uh, characteristic or not, or um, and how easy they are. It, so for example, if you, if you have to get two doses one month apart, and then an annual booster dose, the idea of using vaccines as part of outbreak containment becomes a little less valuable than one dose, never have to find the same people again, uh, and uh, no annual dose needed. Um, 
but you know the this idea of the uh, the hammer and the dance, a wonderful way of of looking, uh, um, or at least innovative way of looking at uh, how you deal with um, shutdowns and closing economy for a short period of time, and then dancing with all these non-pharmaceutical interventions like masks and social distancing and hand washing and outbreak containment. Um, that, that becomes more important in this context. Um, I, I think if, if a country can find every outbreak, let me say it a little differently. This is a, I'm going far afield again, but Warren Buffett said, uh, until the tide goes out, you can't see who's swimming naked. <laughs> until the tide goes out of the epidemic, you can't see where the rocks are, the outbreaks or the clams, or you can't see anything. It's covered by a tide. You can't do outbreak investigation. You can't do testing, tracing, and isolation. If Germany can do that, then uh, as certainly uh, Taiwan and Vietnam and, uh, and Korea and New Zealand can do that now, then the idea of the hammer is over. It's done its job. Now you can do a different dance because you have a vaccine. Then it would be absolutely appropriate to take a look and see if ring vaccination or targeted vaccines would work. Um, you could start off by just doing testing, tracing, and quarantine and vaccination until you have a vaccine that uh, could carry more of the burden itself. But absolutely, uh, you, you've made this investment to gain control of the epidemic. You might as well now uh, profit from that investment that you've made. Larry, does, does any epidemiologist think about whether you could be understand this well enough to predict where the outbreaks will be, to predict who will get infected? Yeah. Not, not, not exactly, but probabilistically. Probabilistically. Yeah, there's, there's a number of people, George, uh, um, uh, Dylan George, at, um, uh, he used to be at BARDA and he's now at InQtel. Uh, has been trying to launch a global weather service that predicts where the where the epidemic, the pandemic will go next. Um, there's a lot of people at MIT who are working on stochastic processes and predictive uh, models. Uh, Jeff Shaman at Columbia University has done a, a really good job on that. Um, I think uh, Sam Scarpino at Northeastern uh, has done quite a bit of that using... Um, using mobility. In fact, he's published extensively on um, the uh, Wuhan outbreak using only mobile phone uh, digital vapor trails to predict where the outbreak would have gone and then looked at real data and seen a congruence in what happened with uh, following mobile, um, mobile phone digital vapor trails. Yeah, I think it's really good. I think, again, it's, it's a little bit like we were talking about with Germany right now is uh, until there is a reduction in the ocean, the, the tide, the, the huge amount of disease, um, it, it's not gonna help you very much, uh, but it's, it's extremely valuable once that ambient viral load goes down a little bit. Um, let, let me say it a different way. If, if we have uh, 250,000 cases a day or 200,000 cases a day and, and the average infectivity is let's say five days, that's not right, but let's say that. So you have a million uh, people who are sources of the disease right now and you have to contact trace 
uh, 50 people for each of them. That's 50 million people you have to find and locate their address. And, and, um, uh, and, then, and then you can predict where it's going to go next. It's just overwhelming. We, we can't do that in the United States right now. You can do it in Germany, apparently. You can do it elsewhere. The information is, in, is, is there. The information is in the phones. Yes. Yes, the information's in the phone. It's also in um, uh, kind of funny things like uh, you can, what, what, what Sam Scarpino just published um, is uh, he found that there were super spreader events that included uh, particular churches that had particular practices, particular restaurants that had particular seating patterns, uh, particular, uh, not, not tourist attractions that created the opportunity for super spreader events. He's one of the people who investigated this outbreak in Maine. Um, yes, I think that it's entirely possible to do a probabilistic um, prediction pattern. Uh, and and as, the, as, the, as the load of the epidemic becomes less, I mean, Germany perhaps could do it right now. 